than them. I was reading a story about a bus driver and a pastor. They died at the same time. And they go up to the pearly gates, and uh, while they're up there, uh, Peter says to uh, the bus driver, follow me, I'm going to show you your home. And so he takes him to his home, and it's uh, real close to God. And then he looks at the pastor, and he says, uh, follow me, and he walks about three miles in the other direction, and he says, this is your home. And the pastor's shocked, and he says, well, wait a minute, why is the bus driver closer to God and I'm further away? He said, that's very simple. He said, when you would preach, the people would sleep. When the bus driver would drive, the people would pray. (laughs) See, that underscores the fact that prayer needs to be a priority in our life. And as Christians, we understand this. Even non-believers understand to some degree the issue of prayer. But how much more for believers should prayer be a priority? There's a guy that has written a number of books on prayer, E.M. Bounds. He's well known. He gives a great quote that I think talks about the priority of prayer individually and corporately. He says, quote, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer, end quote. He's right. And yet this is the area that often gets neglected in our life. The more you have, the more busier you are, the tendency is not to make prayer a priority. And listen, Jesus made prayer a priority. How do I know that? Because in Luke chapter 11, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, why would they say that to Jesus? Because Jesus modeled prayer as a priority in his life and in his ministry. And therefore, you and I need to make it a priority in our life. And here's what I have found. If you don't define a specific time when you're going to pray during the day, if you just say, well, I'll get to it at some point today, typically what happens is the tyranny of the urgent. You end up not praying because you get busy by the urgencies and the exigencies of life. And so you have to schedule a specific time, even if it's 15 minutes, to pray. Now, many of you know Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, whom God used to affect the Methodist movement. And it is said that Susanna Wesley had 19 children. Now, ladies, I want you to wrap your mind around that. 19 children, nine of them died in infancy. But she ran her house like a military machine. And one of the things that Susanna Wesley would do, according to biographers, is she would pray and have time with God about an hour a day. And she would sit in a chair and she would take her apron and she would pull it over her head. And that was her quiet time and she gave her children very strict instructions that she was not to be tampered with during that time. Now listen, if Susanna Wesley, who had 19 children, could make a a priority out of prayer, so can you and I. God calls us to do that. And listen, the Bible says we're to pray in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? It simply means that we pray in concert with the Holy Spirit. We pray led of the Spirit. We pray under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, well, Mike, why make it a priority? Well, the Bible gives us a number of reasons why we should make prayer a priority. Let me give them to you in rapid-fire succession. First of all, to develop intimacy with God. That's really the primary reason, 
to worship Him, to express gratitude and thanksgiving, to overcome temptation, to fulfill our needs and desires, to receive strength and trials, to pray for others, to change my perspective, to bring about change in circumstances, and ultimately to be like Christ. And so we've been looking at this issue of prayer on how to be a prayer-driven Christian. So I invite you to turn to James chapter 5. We've been going through the book of James verse by verse, and this is our final message, message number three, on how to be a prayer-driven Christian. We're looking at verses 13 through 20. And what James is going to do here is give us some principles on how we could be effective in our prayer life or how to be prayer-driven. Now, I mentioned this when we opened up the book of James. It's worth repeating. James, according to the early church, was given a nickname. He was called Camel Knees. And the reason why James was given that nickname is because James spent a lot of time on his knees. Therefore, he had Camel Knees. And so he ends this epistle with the subject of prayer because many of these Jewish people were being oppressed by the rich. They were being mistreated. Many of them were suffering. And so James here waxes eloquent on the subject of prayer. And he notes for us several ways that you and I can be prayer-driven Christians, or he gives us principles on how to be powerful in our prayer life. Let me review the first six with you, and then we'll pick up number seven for this morning. First of all, we need to pray when we are hurting. Secondly, we need to pray when we are cheerful. Thirdly, we need to pray when we are sick. Fourthly, we need to pray with an attitude of faith. Fifth, we need to pray by confessing our sins to God. And number six, we looked at last week, we need to pray for one another. Now we look at number seven in our little list on how to be prayer-driven, and that is this, we need to pray righteously. We need to pray righteously. Notice, if you will, chapter 5, verse 16, James says this, the urgent request, here it is, of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Notice here, James says that powerful praying is only powerful when you're dealing with a righteous person. Now, who is a righteous person? Obviously, it is someone who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the imputed righteousness of Christ in their life, but it's not just positional righteousness. It is practical righteousness, which means this. If you want to be prayer-driven, if you want to be effective in your prayer life, you must be a person that is living a righteous, clean life. Notice I didn't say a perfect life because none of us are perfect. We're going to blow it royally. Sometimes Christians can commit the most egregious sin. Look at David. And yet David was a man after God's own heart. But you know what made David a man after God's own heart? When David was confronted with this sin, he, ad he addressed it and he dealt with it. And so a righteous person is not someone who perfectly conforms to God's Word, but rather it is someone who has a lifestyle, conforms their life and their heart to the Word of God, and when they blow it, they seek to get right with God. See, some Christians don't see answer to prayer because it may not be God's will for their life, but there are times where Christians may not see answers to prayer because they are not living the way that God wants them to. He says here, a righteous person's prayers are powerful and effective. In other words, they're explosive. They are powerful. Why? Because God hears the prayers of those that are living for Him. Those who are casual in their Christianity, who only come to God when the bottom drops out and the roof caves in, they're probably not going to be powerful in their prayer life or see a lot of answers. Why? Because they're not interested in God. 
You see, you know what the essence of prayer is? I want God more than I want anything else. I want Him. I want to know Him. And when I want to know Him, and He's the center and circumference of my life, I'm going to be living a righteous life. On the other hand, the Bible makes it very clear that if I'm not living for the Lord, if I'm not interested in the things of God, God is under no obligation to answer my prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity or wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Notice it doesn't say if you sin, it says if you regard iniquity in your heart. In other words, if you aim at evil, if you choose evil, if you're not living for the Lord, the Lord's not going to answer your prayer. Isaiah 59 says it, I think, even more succinctly. Isaiah is talking about the nation of Israel, and here's what he says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So if you're not seeing answers to your prayer in your life, it could be it's not God's will, or maybe God is saying, wait on me, be patient, I'm going to answer in due season. On the other hand, it could be that you're not living for the Lord. There are people in the Christian community that only come to God when they need help, but they're not interested in following the Lord. It kind of reminds me, you've seen uh, movies like The Godfather and other movie where you're dealing with the mafia, and many of these guys that are caught up in the mafia are very religious. Many of them are staunch Catholics. And what they'll do is they'll go to the priest, they go to confession, they go to mass, and they do all these religious mumbo-jumbo, but then they go out and they murder 20 people, and they engage in crooked business practices. Listen, God's not going to answer their prayers. Why? Because God is not interested in blessing those who are not sold out to Him, who are not walking with Him, who are not living before the Lord in a righteous manner. So let me ask you a question this morning. Would you say that your heart is committed to God this morning, albeit not perfect? Would you say that you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you straddling the fence? Do you got one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, and you only come to God when the bottom drops out or the roof caves in? God wants people that are fully devoted to Him. There's another principle that James gives us here for to be prayer-driven Christians, and that is we must pray persistently. We must pray persistently. Notice, if you will, verses 16 through 18. He says, the urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. And then he uses an Old Testament example. He used Job earlier. Now he's going to use Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was human like us. He had feet of clay. And then notice what it says here in verse 17. Yet he, that is Elijah, prayed earnestly. Now the Greek says that he prayed with prayer. In other words, he prayed persistently. He was intense. He was focused. He kept asking God that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then, in verse 18, he prayed again, and we could assume it was persistent, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. In other words, if you want to be a prayer-driven Christian, you want to be powerful in your prayer, you need to persist when you pray. Too many times we come to God one time and we say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. God wants us to pray persistently. Why? Because what it does is it teaches us dependency upon God. If God gave us whatever we wanted, when we wanted it, right Johnny on the spot, we would not stretch our spiritual muscles. We would not learn to persevere. We would not learn to hang in there. 
And so God makes us work for it because it forces us to have intimacy with God. It teaches us dependency upon God. And listen, when you and I persist and we keep asking God, you know what? There is joy when we see answers to prayer. Now, this doesn't mean that if I persist, God's always going to give me what I want, but it simply means this. Matthew 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. The Greek literally says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Notice the progression, it gets more intense. I am to ask, then I'm to seek, which is more intense, and then I'm to bang on the door and I'm to keep knocking. Jesus told parables about being persistent in prayer. And so if you have a wayward daughter or son, keep praying for them. If you are praying as a single person for a spouse, keep asking God. If you are praying for a non-believer on your job, keep asking. If there's a desire of your heart that is not contrary to God's Word, keep asking God. The Bible says we're to be like bulldogs in our prayer. Now, many of you have had dogs before. Some of you have dogs now. Have you ever taken a, a towel and put the dog, and the dog will grab the towel, and you'll play tug-of-war with the dog. You've done that before. I've done it to dogs where the dog will grip onto that towel, and I'll try to pull the towel away, and I literally will lift the dog up in the air. And it won't let go. Now, obviously, it's a smaller dog. I have a dog that's 100 pounds. That's not going to work. But you know what? We're to be tenacious in our prayer life. We're to keep asking God. We're to keep praying. You know, when God called my wife and I to seminary, we left South Florida to go to Columbia, South Carolina. I went to Columbia International University. They had a seminary department there. They're very big into missions. Well, we had our second daughter, and we were transitioning to South Carolina. And we had to trust God for housing, and we had a weekend to go look for housing. And so my wife and I prayed for a four-bedroom place that we could have. We wanted a room for the kids. I needed an office, and so we prayed. And we prayed, and we said, Lord, we're trusting you for this. And so we drove up to South Carolina to see Laura's mom, and then we came down to Columbia. Her mom lived about two hours north of Columbia. We went to Columbia to look for housing. We were driving on I-20, and I saw an exit sign that said Lexington. So I pull in, and I notice there's a realtor office. So I go into the realtor's office, and I said, hey, I'm a seminary student, this is my first year here. We're looking for housing. Do you have any places? She said, no. She said, but here is a man that I think can help you. And she wrote down Reverend Bill Clower. Now he's now in heaven. Well, I called Bill up and Bill was a Southern boy. I said, look, I'm a seminary student. He's a pastor. And I said, I'm looking for a four bedroom place. He said, well, you know, he said, Mike, he said, if you, if you would have called me yesterday, he said, I just got rid of a four-bedroom place. I said, shoot. He said, but I have a three-bedroom if you want to look at it. I said, well, okay. We only had a short period of time. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you at Shoney's. So we met at that location. He was not what I pictured. You ever listen to somebody in their voice, and then you see him, you're like, I didn't picture the two. And so I met up with him, and he said, Mike, he said, you wouldn't believe it. He said, just this morning, a four-bedroom came available. God answered our prayer. Persistence, persistence. We have seen that in our ministry time and time again. 
God wants us to persist. Now, again, does it mean if I keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, that God's going to always give me what I want? No, but I'll tell you what, we miss out on a lot of blessings because we don't keep asking. And you know what? It takes work. I've been discouraged with God at times, and I'm saying, Lord, I've been praying for this person for so long. Why aren't you answering my prayer? And there's a lot of reasons why prayers go unanswered. Sometimes it's human will, human volition. There's a lot of factors involved. But listen, if God has put it on your heart, it doesn't violate Scripture. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep asking God. And don't quit. There's another principle that James gives us here if you and I are to be prayer-driven Christians, and that is we are to pray boldly or expectantly. We are to pray boldly or expectantly. Notice, if you will, verse 17 It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Stop right there. You say, well, that has nothing to do with praying boldly and expectantly. Yes, it does. Because listen, he's going to contrast Elijah being human, Elijah being a man just like us. He had feet of clay with the fact that he made a bold request that it would not rain for three and a half years, that there would be drought and famine. Notice the contrast that he's making here. Elijah was a man who had feet of clay. In other words, he was human. We often tend to think that a lot of the guys and gals in the Old Testament were super saints, and no doubt about it, they walked with God. But he's trying to point out to the fact to these Jewish Christians, hey, Elijah was no different than you and I. He was a man of clay. Elijah struggled with fear. He got thirsty. He got hungry. Do you remember in the book of Kings when he dealt with uh, Jezebel? And you remember, he had that showdown with the prophets of Baal, and God rained down fire from heaven, licked up the altar, and the prophets of Baal were killed. And then Jezebel basically says, I'm coming after you, buddy. And what does he do? He runs with his tail tucked between his legs. He ends up fleeing, and God has to say, Elijah, what are you doing? Where are you going? See, Elijah struggled with the same emotions that you and I struggle with, and yet Elijah made a bold request. And notice how he's juxtaposing those two things side by side. He was human, he was a man of clay, and yet at the same time, he made a bold request. And so here's the principle. He's trying to say, hey, Elijah is just like us, and if he made a bold request, you and I can pray boldly and we can pray expectantly. Now, too often our prayers are weak, including myself. We don't pray boldly and expectantly when we come to God. Now, praying boldly doesn't mean we demand of God because that's arrogance. The Bible says we don't come to God arrogantly demanding anything. There are those who teach that, and that's really, to me, arrogance. But the Bible does say that we are to approach Hebrews 4, the throne of grace, boldly presenting our needs to God. In other words, make great requests of God. Make bold requests of God. Too many of us think that God doesn't listen to us. We are worms. We're really nothing. God is not interested in me. He's dealing with bigger fish, the Middle East and other things, rather than to hear my prayers. But the Bible makes it very clear that God wants us to come boldly and expectantly. Too often, we don't come expectantly before God. We don't come with an attitude of faith. And I get it. God doesn't answer all our prayers the way we want them. But we need to come boldly before the throne of God and make our requests to God. A guy that did this was a man by the name of Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell's now deceased. He's in heaven. But he started Liberty University. He was the pastor at Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I read his biography because we took our older daughter to Liberty. She was considering going there. And my wife and I visited the school, and they had an orientation for the parents. 
And while, we're there, while we were there, they gave us an autobiography of his life. And I read it. It's a great biography of Jerry Falwell's life. He did not grow up in a Christian home. He grew up with an alcoholic father. It was a very tumultuous background. And yet God saved Jerry Falwell. He became a pastor. He was a workhorse. And he had a vision to start one of the greatest Christian universities on this planet, which today Liberty University is. And I remember in reading in the biography, he went to Liberty Mountain, which you could see in the background there, and it was owned by the government, I believe, at the time. <clears throat> and so he went to these government officials, and his church had been praying. And he said, I want to build a university. That was his dream, his vision, on this property, and I need your property. And they looked at him, and they laughed, and they said, Preacher, you really want this property? You're going to have to come up with $90,000 in order to put a down payment down if you want it. Well, they were thinking there's no way he's coming up with that money in the 1970s. He said, you know what? It'll be in your hands at the end of the week. That is praying boldly. That is praying expectantly. He went to his church. They prayed. They raised the money, and he gave them the $90,000, and the rest was history. If you read his biography, he was clearly a man of faith. And that is one of the spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. But listen, we're all, come, we're all called to come to God boldly and expectantly. I don't demand of God, but too often we don't pray boldly. We don't pray expectantly. We don't come to the throne of grace and say, Lord, I am trusting you for this, and I'm asking you to do this in Jesus' name. And we don't come with a sense of expectancy. Why? Because we don't feel worthy. We don't feel like God hears our prayers. We don't care. Sometimes we get discouraged because we pray, we pray, we pray, we don't see answers, and therefore we end up getting discouraged in our praying. But the Bible makes it very clear that we are to pray like Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. He had a nature just like us. He struggled with fear. He struggled with uh, anxiety. He ran from Jezebel, and yet here was a man that prayed boldly and expectantly of God that it would not rain for three and a half years, and God answered his prayer. Well, there's a tenth principle that the Bible gives us in terms of making sure that we're prayer-driven Christians, and that is this. We need to pray scripturally. We need to pray scripturally. In other words, our prayers need to be based upon the foundation of the Word of God. Notice, if you will, verses 17 and 18, it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You say, well, how did Elijah pray scripturally here? Well, Elijah was basing his prayer that God would bring drought and famine on the land. It was based on the book of Deuteronomy. How do I know that? Because if you read Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, God lists the blessings and the curses. In other words, before Israel went into the land, God said to Israel, when you go into the land, if you obey me, here's what I'll do for you. Here are all the blessings I'll give you. On the other hand, if you go into the land and you join yourselves to idols, you get caught up in sexual immorality, and you turn your back on me, God lists all the curses that he would enact upon Israel. And you know what the curses were? One of them was drought and famine. Elijah knew the Old Testament. He knew what Deuteronomy said. And so based on the word of God, Elijah prayed that there would be drought and famine in the land as a form of chastisement upon God's people. 
It's just like Daniel. When Daniel got taken into Babylonian captivity, God said that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And you know what Daniel did when the 70 years was about to be completed? If you read Daniel chapter 9, Daniel began to pray for God's people and their release from Babylon to go back to their land. And you know what Daniel based his prayer on? He based it upon Jeremiah because Jeremiah said that Israel will be in captivity for 70 years. Daniel knew that. And based on Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel began to pray. And so here's a principle if we're to be prayer-driven. We are to base our prayers upon the Word of God. The Word of God is the foundation of all my prayers. If my prayers contradict the Word of God, God will not answer my prayers. On the other hand, when I base my prayers upon the Word of God, it gives me confidence because the Bible says that I'm to claim the Word of God when I pray. Pray God's Word back to Him. Say, God, you said this. God, you said this. God, I claim your promise here. We sing that hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. That's what we need to do. We need to stand on God's promises. In fact, E.M. Bounds says this great quote, The Word of God is the fulcrum upon which the lever of prayer is placed and by which things are mightily moved, end quote. If you want to see powerful praying, it needs to be based upon God's Word. You say, but Mike, there are things that I ask for that are not in the Word of God. For example, I need a car. They didn't have cars back then. Well, listen, the Bible says God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. And if you need transportation, God will provide transportation. Even though the Bible doesn't mention certain things, it doesn't mean that we can't pray for them. As long as it doesn't contradict the Bible... I'm okay. I can't say, God, I'm asking you as I start this porn business on the internet that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Listen, God's not going to answer that prayer. Why? Because that's not his will. That's evil that goes against his will. And so listen, the Bible says when you pray, if you want God to answer your prayers, pray scripturally. Make sure that your prayers do not err from the Word of God because the Word of God is the foundation upon which we pray. Well, number 11, James gives us another principle to be prayer-driven Christians, and that is we are to pray specifically. We are to pray specifically. Notice, if you will, verses 17 and 18 again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Notice he was specific. He said, God, based on your word, I'm asking that it not rain. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. God, I'm asking you to break the drought, and I'm asking you that it would rain again. Notice he was very specific in his prayer. In other words, don't pray around the world when you pray, God bless the missionaries, God bless this area, God bless that area. We understand that with little kids. Little kids pray around the world. That's understandable. But you know what God wants us to do? He wants, to be, he wants us to be pinpoint in our prayer when we ask Him. Pray specifically so when God answers, we can see how God answered. God, I'm asking you to provide this car. God, I'm asking you to pay my electric bill, $180. God, I'm asking you for this job. And listen, God is concerned what concerns us. I know people that have prayed for cars, and they said, God, my favorite color is blue. I'm asking you for a blue car. Now, if you want to give me an ugly green car, that's fine. But Lord, I'm asking you for a blue car. 
Listen, if you're praying for a spouse and you like somebody who's blonde hair and blue eyes, ask God for a woman who has blonde hair and blue eyes. You say, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. I've seen people pray specifically, God, here's what I'm asking you to do. Now, again, there are conditions. The Bible gives conditions. I can pray persistently. I can pray boldly. I could pray based on the Word of God. But listen, there are conditions for God to answer my prayer. I get that. Just because I do certain things doesn't mean that God is going to answer my prayer. You say, well, Mike, if I pray specifically, what are the conditions for God to answer my prayers? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here are some of them. You must pray. You must be saved. Secondly, you must pray in Jesus' name. In other words, Jesus' name is not a magical formula you tack on at the end of your prayer and somehow God magically answers it. To pray in Jesus' name, name represents authority. When you pray in Jesus' name, you are saying, God, I'm asking this because this is consistent with what Jesus would ask for. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. So you got to be saved. you got to pray in Jesus' name. you got to pray with the right motive. Yes, I have to ask according to God's will. You must be living a life of obedience. You must not be indifferent to the poor. You must pray in faith, and you must not mistreat other people. So yes, when I pray specifically, God will hear, but I must meet the conditions that God has laid out in His Word. I had to do that this week. I had to do a wedding in South Carolina. I flew back in last night, got in at midnight. I left Thursday. I had to do the wedding on Saturday. And on Friday, there was an outreach. We went to a high school, and I was going to preach to the football players and feed them. And the couple that lives in South Carolina, they set this up for me. Well, she called me during the week, and she was all frazzled. And she said, Mike, I got a problem. Me and Jim cannot be at the outreach. And she was all nervous. She said, we had an emergency. I can't be there. I said, calm down. I said, I'll take care of it. She said, I've arranged for this place. There's a restaurant in South Carolina called Fazoli's. You ever heard of Fazoli's? Do they have one here? Yeah, it's terrible Italian food. But anyway, (laughs) we spent $600 getting this food for about 120 people. So timing was of the essence. I prayed specifically, God, you know that I'm the linchpin in all of this because they can't be there. And Father, I'm a flying American Airlines, and you know American Airlines, they're always late. And so I said, Father, I've got to get there on time because what I found out was the outreach got moved from Friday to Thursday. That was the day that I was flying. So I had about a two-hour window, and then I had to get picked up, get the food, deliver it to the school, and then me and another guy did our outreach there. There was timing issues that took place. This is the, the kids there. You can see how far it goes back. So we had to deliver the food. So I specifically said, God... I need to be on time. Please, no delays, because I had to go from here to Charlotte and then take a flight from Charlotte to Columbia. Well, thank the Lord, the Lord delivered, and I was able to work out the outreach. You see, pray specifically. Get specific with God so that when God answers, you can give Him the praise and glory. Well, there's one final principle that James gives us here on how to be prayer-driven Christians, and that is we need to pray compassionately. We need to pray compassionately. Now, the word prayer is not mentioned here, but it's implied, and I'll show you this as we go through with it. Notice, if you will, verse 19 and 20 as he ends this epistle. He says, my brothers and sisters, 
If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, James here is talking about someone who wanders away from the truth. He calls him a sinner, and he says, if a person brings that person back, they will save them from death and their sins will be covered. Now, prayer is not mentioned here, but it is implied. Because here's the deal. James is dealing with someone who wanders from the truth, and the $64 million question is, who is James referring to here? Well, there's two different views. Let me share them with you and then I'll wrap it up. The sinner here who wanders away from the truth, the first view, is he's dealing with a backslidden believer. This is a person who's saved, but they've backslidden away from the Lord. They don't lose their salvation, but they have strayed from the Lord. Now, remember the context. He's dealing with oppressed Jewish Christians who are very poor. Many of them were being oppressed by the rich, and some of them buckled under the weight of their circumstances. Remember he said, go to the elders of the church. They'll pray for you, anoint you with oil, and you'll be uh, forgiven, and God will raise up the sick person. He tells them to do that, but some of them have lost heart, and they've strayed away from God. And the implication is he's saying to the, the believers, go after that believer that has strayed from God. That believer that has drifted away from God, you who are walking with God, he says, if they've wandered from the truth, you go after them. How do you go after them? You pray for them, and then you talk to them and try to restore them back. And if they respond, he says their sins will be forgiven and they'll be delivered from death. You say, what do you mean delivered from death? Sometimes there is a sin unto death. A believer can stray from the Lord and truly be saved, and God can take their life prematurely. If you want an example of that, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You know what the Corinthians were doing? They were having a Budweiser communion service. Many of them were having a potluck and the Corinthians were getting drunk. Can you imagine that, having a church potluck in communion and people are getting intoxicated, they were eating all the food? And Paul says to the Corinthians, the reason why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep, fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. He says, is because you're doing what you're doing. Sometimes God can take a believer home prematurely if they stray for a long period of time. Now, why God does that for one and not the other, I don't know. And I don't think that's God's normal mode of operation. How about Ananias and Sapphira, one lie and they drop dead? God normally doesn't do that because everyone in this room, including myself, would be dead. So he says, if you got a believer that's wandered, Go after them, pray for them, talk to them. Do you know a believer in your life, somebody that's drifted from God? They're not walking with God? You say, well, Mike, how do I know if they're saved? Sometimes you don't know. You assume based on their profession of faith, go after them and try to bring them back. Now, obviously, you can't coerce them. If they're not open to it, you have to back away, especially if it's a child. And so the one view is that they're believers. The other view is James is dealing with a non-believer here. He calls them a sinner, and he says they'll be delivered from death. What kind of death? Spiritual death. 
In other words, God will save them. So if you got someone who's been coming to church, they know the truth, but they've wandered away from God, but they're not really saved, he says, go after them, pray for them, try to bring them to Jesus Christ, and you will save them from eternal damnation. You say, but wait a minute, Mike. If that's true, are you telling me that there are people in the American church that profess faith that are not really saved? That's exactly what I'm saying. There are a lot of people in the American church that look like Judas, not physically, but spiritually. Judas, they had no idea that Judas would betray Jesus, because remember at the Last Supper, what did they say? They said, Lord, is it I? Is it I? They didn't know. They had no inkling that Judas was a false branch, and yet Judas was a devil. And listen, that's scary. Because there's a lot of people in the American church that play the role Christian. Ostensibly, they look Christian, but they're really not. And James says, if they wander, go after them. So either he's dealing with a believer, non-believer. My view, my conviction is he's dealing with a believer here who has wandered away from the truth and is backslidden. What we need to do is pray compassionately for them. We need to pray for them. We need to go after them. And we, not, we need to try to get them back to walk with the Lord again. So let me ask you as we close this morning, are you a prayer-driven Christian? Is prayer a priority in your life? Or do you only pray in emergency situations? God wants us to be prayer-driven Christians. And listen, you got to make it a priority or it won't happen. Praise the Lord, this morning we had 33 people at prayer this morning at 8.30. God's moving. And so I want to encourage you, Come out once a month or twice a month. You may not be able to make every week, but listen, we need to be a prayer-driven church because God will hear our prayers. Now, next week, we're going to start an Old Testament book. We're going to look at that little book, if you want to read ahead, the book of Haggai. Some of you have no idea that that was in the Old Testament. It is an Old Testament postcard. It's a little book. It's a great book. We're going to look at that on doing the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for reminding us that we need to be prayer-driven believers. Father, we confess to you that we all struggle with prioritizing prayer, Father. And Lord, part of it is we're not desperate enough, Father, because we're all blessed. We all have so much stuff. We become complacent. We become indolent. God, we repent of that sin Prayerlessness is a sin. Forgive us, Father. And I pray that we would seek you more diligently. Father, I lift up Israel this morning. We ask that you would move in that nation, move among the Israeli people. Even though Israel as a nation is apostate spiritually, we know that you have a future for Israel, and we know that there is a remnant that you are calling out. We pray, Lord God, for protection among your people, and we pray, Lord, that they would be successful as they root out terrorism. We pray for all the casualties of war. We know there's going to be a lot of suffering. God, I plead with you that you would raise up Christian organizations, strategically place believers where they need to be to minister healing. We pray for those caught in Hamas, those who are caught in the hatred, that you would reveal yourself to them and save them. God, do a work in our nation. Do a work in the American church. Pour out your spirit upon our country. God, we desperately need you in this nation. Just take a minute right now before we worship to lift up a need that you have, 
some burden that you're dealing with, ask the Lord to speak to you this morning and tell the Lord what you want Him to do. Father, we thank You for all that You're doing. Thank You for hearing our prayers. We ask this in Your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close in worship. And don't forget this week, you are salt and light. You are salt and light. ABC cards. When I went to the airport at Columbus, uh, I got off the bus and uh, I told the guy, I said, man, I said, man, I'm so sorry. I don't carry cash on me. I wanted to give him a tip. He said, man, don't worry about it. It's all right. And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? He said, I'd go to heaven. I said, why? He said, because I'm a good, righteous person. And I said, well, let me explain to you why being a good, righteous person won't get you to heaven. He said, tell me more. So I told him, and right there I put my arm around him and led him to Christ. He was ripe, ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there are people that are willing to hear, but we got to take that step and be bold in our faith. Let's worship together.